0: People who go to climb Mount Everest in the coming decades uh, will not be climbing through snow during the climbing season, at least. They'll be climbing on bare ice, and as the decades go
1: on, they'll be climbing on a rock instead. That's Paul Majewski, director of UMaine's Climate Change Institute, talking about what he and his team of scientists have discovered about what's happening on the world's highest mountain. I'm Ron Lesnette, and this is the Main Question Podcast. Thanks for joining us as we begin season six. We've got some compelling stories lined up for this season, though not many will have bigger headline-grabbing findings than this story. Mount Everest. It rises 29,029 feet above sea level. That's almost five and a half miles. Many of us probably assume that the world's highest peak would be an impenetrable fortress of frozen ice and snow. Majewski and several of his fellow researchers from the Climate Change Institute were part of a large group of scientists from several institutions who went to the Himalayas to take measure of the changes happening on the rooftop of the world. The field research was part of the National Geographic and Rolex Perpetual Planet Everest Expedition in 2019. Instead of a frozen fortress that is unaffected by changes happening at lower elevations, they found that climate change has had a significant impact on the world's highest glacier. The ice and snow up to 8,000 meters has disappeared at an alarming rate. Thousands of years of accumulation have vanished in about 30 years. Beyond the drastic changes that will mean for climbers who want to conquer Everest, these rapid changes will have a profound effect on millions of people In fact, more than 1 billion people depend on these glaciers for drinking water and irrigation. We spoke with Majewski and PhD candidate Mariusz Potoski, who did the work to retrieve the world's highest ice core. That tube of ice, more than 30 feet long, was brought off the mountain and analyzed to provide these findings. Potoski also helped set up the world's two highest weather stations near the summit. They'll provide climbers and others with much more detailed, accurate information. Majewski and Potoshki talked with us about their findings and its many implications. They also shared with us what the adventure was like and what the challenges were to doing science in this extreme environment. Well, thank you both for joining us. Maybe let's go back to when this all began. This expedition, I believe, took place in 2019. How did it come together? What was the overall goal and the overall mission of, of this uh, huge effort here? Paul, maybe start with you.
0: My involvement in this expedition, the National Geographic and Rolex Perpetual Planet Mount Everest expedition, started in 2018 when I was approached by National Geographic with the idea that they wanted to go to Everest and do some research there. Uh, And I spoke to them, and then a few days later, I basically got a request from them to be the science leader, and after that, I got a request to be the expedition leader. National Geographic uh, chose everest for the same reason that we did uh, many years ago we mostly worked on the north side uh it's iconic uh and as a consequence people know exactly where it is uh and people get excited about the what might be happening on mount everest mount everest of course is the highest mountain in the world so the big question really was for the expedition how much of a change has occurred as a consequence of recent human activities on Mount Everest. Uh, Mount Everest is one of a whole series of mountains throughout the Himalayas and the so-called Hindu Kush. Uh, and they, the water that is precipitated onto those mountains as snow, which eventually forms ice, uh, is a storage or a so-called water tower for what turn out to be 250 million people on the planet. And if you take a look at all of the water towers, all of the mountains in the world that have glacier cover, they impact in terms of their water resources about 2 billion people. So understanding what's happening with glaciers, water availability, water quality is very important.
1: Mario, what was your part of this project? What, what were you there to do? First of all, uh, when Paul
2: first contacted me about the Everest expedition, I thought honestly it's a joke because it's a dream to go place like this. And uh, at the beginning, I didn't know I would have a chance to uh, be in a summit team, um, because the plan evolved a couple couple times different direction, but since I know I would be at the summit team, that that just caused like a huge excitement. And uh, my major uh, role as a glaciologist, um, been collect samples all the way up and drill ice cores at the highest possible location at Everest. So our major goal was summit, but uh, we had to verify our our plans during the expedition. And especially with weather uh, patterns that year, uh, weather was very picky. The weather windows, they were not uh, very uh, long. So uh we had to ch- change our plan plans and uh since huge number of climbers uh try to uh summit same day as we plan our uh, drilling process, we had to verify this and we recovered uh ice core at the South Coal Glacier, which is uh I think the best uh drill site on Everest. It's the highest located glacier on the mountain, and um wonderful scenery and very uh, comfortable drilling conditions uh, compare what we may have at the
0: summit.
1: What is the headline from the latest findings you have and how different are those findings from what was thought to be happening?
0: The big headline from our Everest expedition is the fact that even the highest glacier on earth, it's just over 8,000 meters, turns out to be declining disappearing quite rapidly since probably the 1990s uh, as a consequence of climate change. The upper 2,000 years of that glacier are gone since sometime in the 1990s to the present, a dramatic volume loss of that glacier, which means that although unidentified in the past, that glaciers at high elevations throughout the world are as impacted Uh, by warming, as are the glaciers that we see at middle and lower elevations. The final take-home measure is we know the Arctic is warming, we know portions of the Antarctic warming, we know that things are changing all over the planet, the ocean is warming, uh, and now we know that the highest elevation on the planet is warming.
1: Mario, how different or concerning is what you found versus what was thought to be happening there. Is is there a big difference in those two things? Yeah, uh,
2: we're expecting that uh, we'll find that, uh, first of all, uh, we'll see changes in, in uh, glaciers, but we didn't expect uh, that what we find that uh, high altitude glaciers, especially at 8,000 meters, they're disappearing so fast. So the biggest surprise for us was that the uh, surface of a glacier at eight thousand meters at the South Pole it's already two thousand years old. So the top part of the glacier uh, is gone. So that was the biggest surprise for us. We didn't expect that. Um, we we thought it could be a couple decades, maybe century, but not two thousand years. That based on radiocarbon dating.
1: Are we going to potentially get to a point when there is actually either? no snow but ice and even bare ground at these high elevations is that where we're headed
0: it's very possible that in the uh next 2 to 5 decades that the glacier that we looked at just over 8000 meters on everest will be gone completely it has been sort of self-protected for a long time with snow cover snow when it falls on glaciers Uh, reflects a large amount of the incoming radiation, 90 to 100%. Once that snow cover is gone, you expose ice, which is darker than snow. It absorbs radiation, doesn't reflect as much. Uh, And then eventually when the ice is lost, you have rock, which uh, absorbs a great deal of radiation. So that's what's happened. It still snows on Everest, but the snow disappears uh, during the uh, summer season. And... There is just not enough thickness of snow uh, to protect the surface ice. The ice is exposed and it goes much faster than it would have had it had snow cover. The net result is that people who go to climb Mount Everest in the coming decades uh, will not be climbing through snow during the climbing season. At least they'll be climbing on bare ice and as the decades go on, they'll be climbing on a rock instead
1: play this out for us in terms of potential outcomes that might happen if if the water dries up, people don't have that resource to drink or for irrigation or for power. Are there other uh, ramifications in terms of instability or earthquakes or other things that might happen as well?
0: As the glaciers in these mountainous regions begin to disappear, which of course has been going on since at least the 1990s. And quite dramatically in the last couple of decades, we of course lose water for hydroelectric power, water for agriculture, water for human and ecosystem uh, consumption. At the same time, this tremendous amount of melting that's going on. And this melting Uh, can get trapped along the glacier edge in literally an ice container uh, for some period of time. But eventually that ice container breaks because the glacier is getting smaller and smaller. It can release catastrophic amounts of water. These are called glacier outburst floods, gloffs. Uh, They can wipe out entire villages. In addition, as you get more and more melt, uh, the very steep, uh, in many cases, debris-covered slopes in the Himalayas become less stable because water is running over them. Temperatures are warmer in general. So anything that was frozen now moves around. Plants will begin to invade to higher elevations, uh, animals to higher elevations. Some of the ones who live at the very high elevations will obviously uh, disappear. It's a very big change for the people in these high mountain areas. As we know, the Arctic is changing dramatically. In fact, as of 2007 to 2012, the length of the summer season in the Arctic doubled. Everything changed. Uh, the sea ice extent is radically different than it has been for thousands of years. And that result is it's opening up, uh, obviously, a possibility for shipping, possibility for Uh, people to for more migration. Uh, But at the same time, anywhere there's frozen ground, uh, as there would be in very high parts of the Himalayas, in this case, the Arctic, wherever there's frozen ground that's melting, all of a sudden it becomes almost impossible to move over that. So the Arctic is a good example of what will probably happen uh, in the Hindukush Himalaya, Uh, a very dramatic change, not just in the temperature in the area, but in their entire environment.
2: What Paul already pointed, uh, these old changes may affect all people living down um, from the mountains. Um, so based on um, on our experience, we see that changes in high mountains, we've observed that in a, uh, Chilean Andes, uh, but we see right now this in Himalayas, um, huge amount of people living down there and they are uh, very strong related to water sources. And Himalayas just provide this water. It's for agriculture, uh, hydropower, and for um, ecosystems and human living. So um, small changes up in the mountains affect people down down the stream.
1: And this is happening in mountain ranges all over the world, right? The Peruvian Andes, I saw something recently where their water resource sourced from glaciers is is going to go away as well.
0: Absolutely. Uh, All high mountain areas are basically having the same sort of impacts. And in places like the Andes, where we we work in Peru right now, but we worked in Chile for many years, these glaciers are uh, being depleted very, very fast. In Chile, uh, the glaciers are considered to be such an important resource that you you can't take a piece of ice. It's against the law unless you have a a permit. Those glaciers, Chile is a very long country, but a very narrow country, and it is completely dependent on uh, the long string of glaciers on the Andes that uh, provide hydropower, uh, water for all of the important uses that we use, uh, water, and as these glaciers get smaller and smaller, the hydropower plants that were put in will obviously begin to decrease in value. Uh, the pasture lands that people have been using for uh, animals will begin to disappear. When we work in Chile, we work with the local cowboys um, and their horses for our logistics, and uh, they they tell us that uh, in the past, uh, there could have been X number of cattle grazing on an acre. Now it's probably 20% of that number of cattle that can actually be sustained on, on an acre. Very, uh, very dramatic changes. In Bolivia, for example, uh, there is a place called Chacaltaya Chocol- was a tremendous ski area uh, and it was a snow covered glacier. They built chairlifts, now that the glacier is completely gone, uh, this it certainly still snows, but it's not enough snow actually to to fill in all the rocks that were covered by the glacier before. So it's a chairlift, at, basically to nowhere, up and down a hill with no longer any ability uh, to ski there. The ski lodge is yeah, it's certainly a tourist destination, but it's not for skiing anymore.
1: Mario, talk about the logistics of this. It. it was at least twenty-eight thousand feet where you pulled the highest ice core. Just talk about the adventure, the logistics of getting all this equipment up there and doing what you need to do when there's no oxygen and you can't take your gloves off for, for very long. How hard was it to, to get the samples that you got?
2: First of all, uh, I focus so much to prepare myself physically because that's very challenging. Climbing Everest and, uh, as a goal um, to drill at the summit uh, I really put a lot of work to prepare myself physically, just my ability just to climb so high. Uh, plus, uh, I had lots of stress that if I'd be able to uh, do any work at that elevation. But uh, that was a very long process, lots of people have been involved in this, uh, lots of logistics behind, lots of preparation. Uh, not just myself, but also the gear that I was planning to use and drilling equipment. So we did lots of uh testing here in our laboratories and in uh, field as well. Uh we traveled to Iceland, we had to modify our offshore drill, lots of preparation and then um lots of unknowns because nobody uh drilled at that I- altitude uh before. So one of the biggest fears which we had that was that gear will work at that elevation and how long we'll be able to stay and proceed our work but um, everything worked fine. Since I just started drilling, I realized the ice condition is it's great, and it may happen, so uh, we su- we succeed. You must
1: have breathed a sigh of relief. How, how long was the ice core that you pulled?
2: When we arrived
1: at the drill site, uh, we
2: had like a full dedicated for this, so we didn't know what to expect. It could be a very slow process, and it's very tiring, even in low elevations, to pulling out the um, drill with a core since you go deeper and deeper, it's more difficult, but uh, all process uh, took us about three hours. So we were very surprised how fast it, uh, it went. So we recovered 10 meters uh, at the major drill site. And later we had extra time. So we decided to co- collect uh, basal ice from other site, closer to uh, so- South Cole, uh camp.
1: Um, so total we recovered 12 meters of ice. Now you've been to many of these far-flung places all across the globe. For this particular expedition, I, I suppose you were sort of the logistics manager, but just talk about the logistics and the adventure that the team experienced. You were at at base camp on Everest, right?
0: Yeah, my work, uh, because we had uh, 35 scientists involved in this project, uh, Part of my duty was to know what was going on at base camp scientifically, what was going on at lower elevation scientifically, and then of course our important summit team of which Mario Potoski and a colleague uh, Baker Perry from Appalachian State and Tom Matthews uh, from Loughborough University previously but now at King's College in London. Uh, they were the three scientists on the summit team along with a, a, a large group of Sherpas and uh, so uh, there was a lot of science going on. We were looking at not just uh, water quality from melting glaciers. We were also uh, looking at glacier, overall glacier health. Uh, trying to understand how much it has changed in the last few hundred, if not few thousand years. There was a University of Maine team that was involved in the project with us. Aaron Putnam was the leader of the Glacial Geology Program. We had people drilling uh, in lakes to look at lake cores. We had people putting in automatic weather stations, five of them, uh, two of the highest, are now the highest in the world. Those were particularly exciting because that was... Uh, It's the first time that those stations have ever been put up there. And there was a high one, not quite as high as these two in the past, but it only lasted six months. Uh, Ours have already lasted a couple of years. They require some repair, but they're doing basically quite well. And it is going to provide much better information for climbers in the future. Uh, climbers have a very short window, uh, typically the last two weeks of May is when the climbing se- primary climbing season is on the south side of Everest uh, and within that two weeks what you hope for is a three-day window in which you can make your way to the top and come back down again and in order for that three-day window to be uh, optimal conditions, you need low winds, You uh, need a slight increase in pressure uh, with based on the atmospheric circulation patterns. The increase in pressure gives you a tiny bit more oxygen. And then you need, obviously, milder temperatures and, and as I mentioned, low winds. Uh, and that was all based on models before. Uh, so the important thing is, how good are those models? And as it turns out, the models are actually not so bad, but we didn't know that. Uh, number one, and number two, they are not absolutely the same as what is happening real time up on top of the mountain. And in order to be able to put high elevation information into global and regional models to understand how precipitation and temperature changes and how it affects weather patterns, uh, it's very valuable to have these automatic weather stations up there. I should also mention there was a biology team, there was a surveying team, uh, the most detailed map ever produced of the south side of Mount Everest by National Geographic team, Alex Tate and others. So there was a lot going on. Uh, it was an exciting place to be.
1: Now, we often hear the metaphor used uh, in terms of the Earth's climate and what's happening, that it's like trying to stop an ocean liner. It just doesn't happen on a dime. So... How how inevitable are the trends that are happening? And is it now a matter of just adapting and mitigating what is going to happen no matter what?
0: The likelihood is that things will just continue the way they are. Obviously, if we want to make sure that in the coming decades it doesn't get as bad as it can, uh, we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Right now, it certainly looks as if... The at least the moderate to the bad uh, trend is the one that we're headed towards. If we were to cut back greenhouse gas emissions today back uh, to about 20 years ago, we might around 2040 or 2050 start to see the everything flatten out a little bit. It's unlikely that that's going to happen, unfortunately, despite a tremendous amount of, of effort on the part of uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and scientists and people all over the world. So the answer is that we're going to experience more of the same. The best word to describe future climate is less stable. Uh, and in some places that means much warmer, others actually colder. In some places it means wetter, drier, increased storms, obviously increased uh, sea level rise. So we're, we're on track uh, for some uh, rougher times than we have now. Uh, That means, obviously, that we need to take mitigation more seriously. Uh, It means that we have to adapt. But like everything else, there's a silver lining. If we decrease greenhouse gases, uh, we can slow the process of warming down. If we decrease greenhouse gases, we uh, decrease uh, change in temperature and therefore uh, migration of invasive species, increases in diseases, if we if we reduce greenhouse gases we also clean up the atmosphere with respect to a whole variety of pollutants uh everything from particles which affect our respiratory system to toxic metals which affect us neurologically uh and also our our our, our cardiology uh and a variety of other things so uh This is the time and we're reminded by COVID-19 because the air cleaned up quite a bit during COVID-19. We're reminded that we have the opportunity to live in a much cleaner and a much healthier environment despite the fact that uh, the length of the summer seasons will will increase and the winters will get milder. It will be an experience very different uh, than anything experienced by any of our family members going back tens,
1: hundreds of generations. Did anything come out of the recent climate change summit in Glasgow, Scotland?
0: The results uh, were largely uh, predicated by what comes out of the mm, every four to six year intergovernmental panel on climate change, UN hosted uh, reports. And those reports have stressed every single time they come out. And this means for more than 20 years that we are experiencing warming. It's a consequence of greenhouse gas rise, and that rise is a consequence of human activity. The Paris Climate Accord uh, was one of the most successful of the uh, policy meetings that went on uh, because for the first time ever, countries were expected to come to the table with their estimate of how they felt they could reduce their emissions rather than being pushed into it, which obviously always seems to work out much better. The U.S., of course, dropped out of the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, That gave the entire Paris Climate Accord and the Greenhouse Gas Reduction uh, Initiative uh, quite a kick uh, in the wrong direction. As a consequence, however, uh, grassroots organizations, certainly throughout the United States, became even more active. The hope was that uh, COP26 in Glasgow would not only uh, reinforce the Paris Climate Accord, which it did, but would also strengthen uh, a variety of uh, things, including uh, getting countries to reduce their emissions even more, because it's now been several more years, and therefore the drop has to be even greater, uh, by getting countries together to help those countries uh, that are not creating the problem, that tend to be poorer, uh, some kind of support. And the answer is that the mo- that COP26 went in that direction. Did it do as much as people hoped that it would? No, not quite. The uh, U.S. stepped in and had, I think, a very positive effect at re-rallying um, countries. Uh but you can't just expect the world to change in a couple or a few days with COP 26. It was the it was a good step in the right direction. There's tons more to do, uh, and it's critical that we keep our eye on this. The tenant. There's been a lot of interest in climate change in the last couple of years, and it's taken decades uh, for the level of interest to rise where it is today, which is fantastic. Let's just hope, however, that it doesn't turn out to be a, um, something that people get excited about for a couple of years and then forget about. And this is a long, long-term uh, involvement that we have to have with cleaning up our environment, reducing greenhouse gases, and learning to live with our environment better. Uh, for the U.S., it's a great opportunity uh, to retune our infrastructure. Uh, After World War II, the US had without a doubt the most impressive infrastructure in the world for energy, transport, travel, Um, but it's old uh, and there are better ways of doing things now. So this is a perfect time for us to make the transition to renewables. Will that transition occur uh, within five years? No, it's gonna take 25 to 40 years for the full transition so in the process, there'll be plenty of time to for all of us to adjust. We're already beginning to adjust to the idea that we will. there'll be a lot of electric cars out there. And three years ago, I don't think anybody believed that that would necessarily be the case. So I, I'm very positive about the future. Uh, yeah, there are places that you won't want to live. Maine is a place you will want to live, for better or for worse. The population will increase. Uh there will be countries in which uh, there'll be hundreds, millions of people migrating uh, because of drought, uh, because of food insecurity and a variety of other things. In general, the US is in, is in good shape. We, I think we have to remember that we are part of a global community, and if we let the rest of the global community fall, uh, it's going to impact us. There's a lot to do, but I'm optimistic, and particularly optimistic as of the last couple of years.
1: And so finally, where does this go from here? Mario, what, what's next in terms of expeditions or things to explore that develops this story further for you?
2: We learned so much uh, from Everest expedition, and of course we would like to continue, but we have lots of limitation, just um, even financial. It's, expedition like this costs a lot of money, but there are lots of places in Himalayas we would like to sample, we would like to prove uh, what exactly what we learn on Everest and definitely we'll try to
1: uh, focus on that area in the future. What are some expeditions coming up that uh, continues this search?
0: There are many more things that we need to learn about the climate before uh, we are um, shocked by another surprise. We've had a lot of surprises in the past. Acid rain, which of course uh, legislation did a great job in reducing. Uh, We have a lot of other shocks. The latest is PFAS, uh, PFAS, forever chemicals, Uh, toxic metals like lead, and of course greenhouse gas rise. Uh, I don't think most people believe that it could have an impact this fast. Uh, And when I say fast, I mean faster than a political cycle within a very short period of time. Our research continues to uh, look at past climate because there are things that we can learn about past climate that are not captured in the approximately 100 years of instrumental records. Uh, We also look at modern climate, basically from today back a hundred years to understand as much as we can about how the system operates, how fast it's changed, uh, because that's the best data. And all of this is intended to help us make, through our institute and obviously many other organizations, better predictions for future climate, where it will go and what the impacts will be. All the models suggest that by 2100, we will have one and a half to two, possibly, if not three to four degrees centigrade global rise in temperature, which is very significant. Uh, But they're all quite linear. They're all sort of ramping up. The final number might be very close to what the real number is. In the past, the models have always gotten the basic trend, but they've always underestimated what's going to happen. However, we we need more information. We need to know what's gonna happen in the next 10 to 20 years. That requires understanding what happens locally, uh, not just to precipitation, temperature, and winds, but also what those impacts can be, uh, how fast they can change, and how fast they might uh, go backwards for a little while. For example, if we had a volcanic event like the 1992 Pinatubo volcanic event, we would probably experience in the Northern Hemisphere a decrease in temperature of one to two degrees centigrade for a year or two, Uh, because the Arctic responds two times more than anything else. That means a two to four degree centigrade drop in temperature. So if all of a sudden shipping opens up uh, throughout the Arctic and everybody gets used to the idea that they need to ship through the Arctic and everything gets set up, a volcanic event could shut that down for a year or two not the end of the world necessarily but when you start talking about agriculture it is very important agriculture can only take bad hits uh, for so long one or two years of of bad weather conditions for agriculture and there, there'll be a lot of failure and food insecurity
2: this is very important what paul mentioned especially a place like southern greenland which is developing very fast and it's been attractive as a Uh, touristic place, but also um, establishing this water quality and monitoring just before that happened. This is very important. And we see trends, uh, lots of places change. And right now, Southern Greenland is attractive as well as a mining place. So there are lots of fears um, that it may change entire ecology there.
1: Fascinating and eye-opening work. Thanks for uh, taking the time to tell us about it. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Thanks for joining us as we embark on Season 6 of the Main Question podcast. You can find all of our episodes on many of the platforms where you get all your podcasts, Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. They can also be found on UMaine's Facebook and YouTube pages, as well as Amazon Podcasts and Audible. Drop us a note if you have a question or comment at mainquestion@main.edu. at This is Ron Lisnet. We'll catch you next time on the Main Question.